I'll be reading from Psalms 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Wayne. It's good to be here for um, another RUF Sunday. I'm just so, I have so much gratitude for how Christ Prez ministers to college students, partly because um, your staff is two of my predecessors, Les and Brian, but also in just all the little ways that y'all minister to college students. I often see at the 1045 service in particular, uh, deacons leading about like eight to 10 college students that have shown up 15 or 30 minutes late sometimes to find open seats. And it's just a servant heart. Uh, a lot of y'all have that. And so I'm just so grateful for what Christ Press does for us and for other campus ministries as well. So Les and Brian have been going through this series on the life of David. And so I figured uh, as I've been intrigued with David as a character, as somebody who, who I can identify with, and perhaps you have too, why don't we just look uh, at a Psalm of David, Psalm 13. And if you think about it like this, First uh, and Second Samuel, the life of David, show us what happened to David. But the Psalms often show us what happens in David, what happens inside of him. And so as we interact with the Psalms, I found uh, a little bit of what Eugene Peterson talks about in his book on the Psalms, Answering God, which I would recommend that to anybody, helpful as we enter into this discussion. He says in his book that there are three kind of most common ways that we talk to each other, how we get information across. He calls them language one, two, and three. Language one is the language of personal intimacy and connection. It's love language. It's how we uh, feel like we're connected and whole with another person. So for instance, a nine month old talking to their mother, there's not often many intelligible words being said right there, but just the noises uh, feeds that connection, that intimacy. Language two, on the other hand, Peterson writes, is language of information. These are stories that we tell that help get a point across. This is a math teacher teaching high school students how to do uh, arithmetic. And so language two is basically, what do we need to know to get the job done? Language three, lastly, is just the language of motivation or propaganda. How do we get this group to be a part of something bigger than themselves? Now the Bible speaks in all three different languages, but the Psalms in particular, Peterson notes, is language one. It's how are we relating, how are we being invited to connection, personal, personal intimacy with God? How does God invite us and David to relate to him? And so as we encounter Psalm 13, the question is less of what do we learn from David's life here? It's more of how is God inviting David and us to connect with him, to experience him and his kindness? And Psalm 13 particularly shows that we are invited to relate to God with a certain posture to a certain promise through a certain person. So those are my three points this morning, posture, promise, and person. So 
If you note, Psalm 13 is what is often known as a classic lament psalm. Lament psalms are just prayers expressing sorrows and petitions uh, from the psalmist that has been in a great time of need. And some of the psalms of lament have a pretext to them that tell you kind of what was going on as the person was writing this psalm. Psalm 13 does not have a pretext. It just says it's of David. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do we think was going on? Why, why is David not giving us any context to what's happening here? And the reality is we don't really know. Uh, we don't know why he prays in verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? David is feeling some sense of God's absence, his withdrawal from him, but we can only be left to guess why God has withdrawn from him or why he feels at least that God has withdrawn from him. Now, there are often many times in the Bible that God is absent from situations and from people, that he withdraws his presence. Sometimes it's a form of judgment that he hands people over to their sin to let them feel the repercussions of their own rebellion against him. And as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, as we've seen David, uh, as Brian said, it, uh, is a spiraling king, spiraling out of control. We know that uh, David is not exempt from deserving this type of judgment in God's absence. But other times God's divine forgetting, his withholding of his presence is simply a function of his sovereign timing. We don't always know why God is not present when we are suffering, when we're going through things like sin, disease, abuse, even death. And we're left to wonder, where is God in the midst of this? But David knows, even though he is feeling God's absence at this point in his life, that God's absence if we read the Bible the correct way, it never means that he is indifferent. Verse two, David continues these how long questions that are so common in Psalms of Lament. And these questions about how long are always kind of given with the expectation that it won't be too long. It won't be forever until God shows up. God will act, he will return, he will redeem. And David is just instructing on this, on how to cultivate this sense of desire, this expectation as we take it to God. And so since we don't know the background, the context of this Psalm, I wanna invite us to see that maybe the general nature of this Psalm, that we don't really know what's going on, is maybe instructive to us, that perhaps the ambiguity of the context means that we can have this all applied to us in some form or fashion. Because aren't we all experiencing God's absence in some way or another? Maybe you're a sinner. You've come to recognize yourself in a great deal of sin, feeling God's absence has withdrawn for you and you are left to fend on your own. Or perhaps you are a sufferer going through something really intense and hard. And maybe you feel like you're wondering, where is God in the midst of this? Or maybe you're just a mix of the two, which is us all to some degree or another. What we learn here is less about particulars of the Psalm. We learn more about posture, how the posture of a mature Christian is one of neediness, as one of vulnerability, helplessness. I actually stole the title of this sermon, Learned Desperation from Paul Miller in his great book, A Praying Life. He says this, that learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. I love that phrase, learned desperation. Because what Miller is saying is, look, desperation does not come naturally to us. Humility is not a core instinct to human nature. It takes life humbling us. It takes maybe God even pushing us to these places where we feel his absence to learn desperation. 
We know this of David as he had to feel the consequences of his own sin and even feel the hurt of people rebelling against him, even his own family. And maybe as I've been thinking through this text, maybe the reason we are so anemic in our life with God and our spiritual lives and our spiritual vitality are lukewarm as Les said about that text in Revelation we use today. Maybe it's because we don't want to learn the desperation that God is trying to teach us. Former RUF campus minister, a friend of mine, Britton Wood, said it this way in his sermon at December training this past year. He says, everyone wants to be humble, but not many of us want to be humbled because being humbled involves humiliation. But we must realize that for Christians that humiliation is the way of the cross. Humiliation is about learning desperation. That's the way of Jesus. That's how God invites us to relate to him. I was reading Phil Knight, uh, his memoir, the founder of Nike, And Phil Knight talks a little bit about his painful childhood growing up in the house with his father. And he said his father was a devout Episcopalian Christian, but really he worshiped another God entirely. And that God was respectability. His father wanted to be known as having it together, that his family was beautiful, his house was perfect, he had a lucrative career, and that he was never seen slipping or struggling. But Phil, growing up in his home, which is usually the case with uh, family members, knew that all of this was kind of a charade and that maybe he was fooling the people outside of his home, but not inside, because that inner chaos, that those trials, those sufferings, that sin that God was trying to humble him with would lead over because he didn't want to learn desperation into a drunken binge or a burst of anger at his kids. His dad didn't want to learn desperation. And so I think the question of this text that we just want to start off with is how is God teaching us humility through your humiliation? Perhaps you've had intense suffering in your life recently, the pregnancy that won't happen, the kid that's gone astray, the reputation that's torn down, the rejection that you've faced, whether it's a grad school or a workplace issue, disease, tragedy, and death confront us. Are you seeing these opportunities, these situations as a way to suppress all of that hurt and to maintain respectability, to keep the face on? Or are you seeing it as an opportunity of God inviting you and myself to, to learn desperation? When that sin continues to consume us and we feel as if that we wanna convince everybody else that we have a handle on it, that we know we don't have a handle on it, that idolatry, continues to assault us when anxiety and depression won't subside, are we willing to go through humiliation to get to the place of humility? Or are we gonna hold on to our pride? I think this is the challenge about posture that, got, that David invites us to in Psalm 13, that a mature faith is a desperate faith. But we can only have the guts, the courage to be desperate if we know that when we take our desperation to God, we won't be left alone as there's actually a hope, which brings me to our second point, the promise, the promise. We relate to God with a certain posture to a certain promise. The promise that we see is actually in verse three of this text. And it seems a little veiled at first, but it's when David approaches God and says, consider me, he says boldly, consider me and answer me, O Lord, my God. That personal, just possessive pronoun that David is using, O Lord, my God that he can call on God as his own personal salvation, as his redeemer. 
28 times in the Old Testament, and this is where David is getting this language from, have the courage to get this language. 28 times in the Old Testament, God gives this promise to his people, his people Israel. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. The hope for Israel, the hope for all of God's people, even on this side of the cross, has always been not on our own ability to manage our circumstances or our sin, but in this very promise. The promise that God has taken it upon himself, the responsibility for our redemption, for our preservation, for our salvation, that he is to us a personal God and we are to him a treasured possession. And maybe the suggestion in this text that I wanna submit to you is that maybe God allows us to get to a place where we feel his absence, where we face humiliation so that we crave greater things. That in some mysterious way, God, in God's sovereign, although severe mercy, he allows certain things to allow us to crave greater things. That as a function of his kindness to us, he brings us to a place, he brings us low to where our prayers are just like David's prayers in the end of verse three and end of verse four. That if God doesn't light up our eyes, if he doesn't show us his promise, that we will sleep the sleep of death, we'll be wasted away. Our enemy will triumph, for, uh, triumph over us. Our foes will rejoice that we are helpless without him intervening. A little over three years ago, my family and I were in our uh, bedroom closet understanding that an F3 tornado that had just hit Jonesboro, that was going through Jonesboro, Arkansas was about to hit our house. And so we were bracing, thankfully the Lord and his mercy protected us. Uh, Although our home received a lot of damage, our neighborhood received a lot of damage. And uh, thankfully nobody in our neighborhood was harmed at all. But I remember vividly as we were trying to pick up the pieces to our life the next day, I was at a pizza restaurant that was giving away free pizzas to people that were affected by the storm former RUF campus minister from long time ago, and PCA pastor, Ford Williams, who I'd only met once, he's an amazing pastor that he thought of me in this moment, who I'd only met once, called me and he prayed for me, checked in on me. And I was crying, eating pizza in the parking lot, trying to pick up my life. And then after Ford was done praying for me, he just texted me probably 40 quotes from this lady, Joni Erickson Tata. And I didn't know much about her, Um, But when Joni Erickson Tata was 17, she jumped into the shallow end or dove into a shallow end of the Chesapeake Bay unknowingly and severed part of her spine, experiencing um, disability all the way from the neck down, paralyzation from the neck down. Even to this day, she cannot move a muscle under her collarbone. And as a devout Christian, Joni spent the rest of her life processing how God allowing this in her life was perhaps an invitation to humility, perhaps an invitation to learn desperation instead of maintaining respectability. And here's a beautiful quote that Ford sent me from Joni Erickson Tata. God, when you said no to physical healing, you said yes to a deeper faith. You said yes to a deeper prayer life. You said yes to a greater understanding of your word. You purged sin from my life. You forced me to depend on your grace. You increased my faith and help me to love you more, Jesus. Do we think about our trials, our sufferings, our struggles this way? I know I often don't. And so if you're like me, that struggles to believe that God's no's are actually his yeses, what do we need to learn in the Psalm where David got to this place in verse five and six, that he saw the yes of God, even in the midst of the, the, the present no. 
And so in verse five and six, this brings me to my last point. I think David, what he saw was very acutely the person of God, who God is in his very essence. So the last point, the person. A year ago when I took this job, Brian Sorgenfry was telling me a little bit about what this job would involve. And he said that every other week, uh, a group of like 35 students, juniors and seniors, were gonna come to my house and I had to feed them dinner. And uh, that, that was just as a person with young kids and uh, not much of a handle on their life, that was really overwhelming to me. And as a person who loves to host and cook, I realized that the grill that was able, that I was able to cook for students with at Arkansas State uh, was not gonna really do the job at Ole Miss because that little two burner grass grill that served about 10 students max uh, was not gonna do 35 every other week. And so I had a problem. I wanted a new grill. But then I realized as I was shopping, these grills cost a lot more than I could afford. But I remember this guy, uh, one of my supporters from Birmingham, where, where I'm from, told me when he said, I'm gonna come on and be one of your supporters with RUF. He very, uh, just acutely, to, or he, he very personally told me, he was like, look, I am uh, not gonna give a certain amount of money. I'm actually gonna give less than I could because when you get to a, a situation where you need something that like you can't expense or RUF wouldn't approve of, but you need for ministry and you wanna use it for ministry, just call me, take me up on that. And so after battling with my pride, realizing that I really wanted uh, to cook for students, but my girl wasn't gonna get the job done, I came to a place where I had to admit my desperation. I picked up the phone and I called him. I think this is just a little picture of what God is doing with David's life and perhaps our life as he allows us to come to an end to ourself, that he brings us to places, whether it's by circumstances or your own confrontation with the person in the mirror that you see every day, we have to realize that you are cash poor, that you have to cry out. He allows us to feel the weight of our guilt, our shame, our hurt, what we have done to people and what's been done to us because that is the place where the Christian life begins when we get to a place where we can cry out, where we get to a place where we can be needy. But like my story, we will never come to the place of neediness unless we know the person that we're calling on the other line has not only the means to provide, but the heart to provide, the very heart that wants to provide. So how do we know from this text that God will provide? I told you earlier from Eugene Peterson that the Psalms are personal in nature. And they not only tell us how we are persons and are called to really channel every part of us, mind, body, spirit, to uh, relate with God, but they also show us that God is personal, that he relates to his world, his people, his whole creation, not as a distant deity or just this obscure abstract idea, but he relates to his world as a person. And the Bible not only submits to us too that God is all powerful, able to orchestrate and ordain all things, but it also reveals how he uses his power. How he uses his power in his person is that he intends to use his power to restore, redeem, and save what he loves. And in verse five, we see what God loves. God loves his people. When David boasts of trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord, that is the language of covenant love. That's David going back to that promise that he referred to in verse two, that 
Lord, my God, or verse three, Lord, my God, that God has bound himself, his very heart, his very character, his very nature, his very person to the restoration, redemption, and salvation of his people. The God that's presented to us in the Bible, the God of all creation is the God whose power and love are inextricably linked to his person. And he has inextricably linked his person to his people, the ones that find themselves needing him. And so David knows that he can go to God cash poor with nothing, with empty hands because of the very nature of the person that he's calling on. And I think even more so on this side of the cross, do we not know this? Because we have seen in the very flesh who God is in his person in Jesus. This person of Jesus who came to tell us and show us that every no of God that we experience in our life will end in a greater yes, because he has taken on the eternal no of God, that he has taken the weight of our sin, our guilt, our shame, that he has taken the weight of our suffering and our sadness and our tears upon himself. He has gone to the depths of hell so that we could dwell with him in heaven eternally. And so what David says in verse six is true of us today, if we are in Christ, that the Lord has indeed dealt bountifully with us that even as we experience his nose, the trivial ones and the very painful ones, that Jesus's finished work guarantees for us that our lack will lead to abundance. Our hurt will lead to healing. Our crying will be transformed into singing. Our death will end in life. Our isolation will end with connection. I called that guy uh, about the grill. I finally got the guts to call him. And uh, he's a pretty serious guy, so I didn't know what he was gonna say. And he, all he said was, uh, yeah, let me call you back in a couple of days and we'll try to, I'll, I'll, I'll see, I'll see. I, try, I was like, well, we can go half, whatever. Uh, so I was left two days trying to figure out um, what he was gonna say in return, kind of left me on the hook. And then the next day or two days later, he called me and he um, said, Austin, look, like, what do you think about this grill? And he sent me a picture of a $1,600 Traeger. That's like the size and the cost of a used Honda Civic. And, and I was like, well, I, I don't really, I can't go half on that, man. And before I could even get to that point, he, he said, Austin, I've got 15 families back at your home church in Birmingham that are overjoyed to pay for this. Uh, I've already called Ace Hardware in Oxford. They have one in stock. They'll set it up. They'll put it in your backyard. Uh, we put it in our backyard two weeks later, and then thankfully 70 guys, 70 incoming freshmen came over and we ran out of smoked wings really fast. So I called them for a bigger grill. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I just tell this story because I think it's just a picture of God's bountiful grace that we see. That these, these places of need and desperation, crying out that we get to when we experience his no's lead to greater yeses. The greater yes, ultimately, that is the presence and the love of God himself. What is true of Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 1.20 is true for us too, that every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus. And so the invitation this morning is how are you stewarding the humiliation that God has put in your life? Are you gonna come to him cash poor? Are you gonna hold on to respectability? Are you gonna realize that the God you're coming to, if you are in Christ Jesus, is the God who provides far more abundantly through the riches that he has in the gospel 
than we could ever hope or imagine. So let's pray for this. Father, we thank you that in love, uh, you often say no to things that we wish would be because you have a greater yes for us in Jesus. And so as we, both sinners and sufferers, feeling the weight of our condemnation, our shame, our sin, embarrassed to come to you, or sufferers feeling the weight of hurt and pain, not feeling like we can trust you, feeling like you're far off and absent, would you show us the beauty and the riches that are available to us in Christ Jesus? We ask that by your spirit, you would continue to do that to us week after week after week so that we can experience the joy, this bountiful joy that David has for us here in the psalm. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.